Hey everyone, thanks for tuning in to this episode of Thank You Now What, a podcast about life after service. I'm your host, Matt DeVivo. This episode was produced by Ben Murray. This episode, we spoke with Mike Stedman of Ironbound Boxing. Mike became an infantry officer in the Marine Corps after graduating from the U.S. Naval Academy at Annapolis. He served overseas in Afghanistan and completed tours in Japan and the Philippines. At the Naval Academy, Mike was a three-time National Collegiate Boxing Champion. After leaving the military, Mike worked at an all-boys school in Newark, New Jersey. He quickly progressed from teaching his kids to box on-site to starting a boxing gym in the downtown district of Ironbound. Mike now runs Ironbound Boxing, where he continues his passion for training and mentoring economically disadvantaged kids through a nonprofit, while providing individual and corporate wellness training through his for-profit business. Beyond boxing, Mike runs a youth entrepreneurship program and even hosts his own podcast. As he would say, he's all about lifting those around him as he climbs. At our core, boxing is like our bread and butter. But if we don't give our kids an opportunity outside of the ring, we are failing them. I have a vision for basically the new classroom. So what we want to do is we want to train 10,000 young entrepreneurs of color here in Newark. We hope you enjoy our conversation and thanks for listening. We could have got all that other stuff too. We could have done like the soft intro with just, uh, you know, talking about whatever. Yeah, that's all good. Okay, cool. We'll, we'll get a chance to go back and cover all that stuff again, obviously. But starting from the beginning... When you were looking at going to the Naval Academy, so you went to the U.S. Naval Academy, came out, served in the Marine Corps. Before you went to Navy, what what else did you kind of have on the plate? I like asking people who went to service academies, what else did you have? Because it's such a just unique experience, right. right? Well, I knew I wanted to go to the military, and my mom wanted me to go to college. You know, I was raised in a single-parent home, uh, never met my dad, just lived with my mom and my older sister. And college was a big deal. So she was the one that introduced me to this idea of like, there was a way to go to the military and go to college. So initially we were looking at ROTC. So I'm from College Station and Texas A&M yeah. University is in my backyard. And so initially I was looking at like the core cadets there. I was looking at like the Citadel, VMI, like all these different places, basically just because I wanted to kill two birds with one stone. But it's tough getting into a service academy, right? Because you got to get the like congressional sponsorship and there's going to yeah. be like a whole process, right? Yeah, it's a pain. Yeah, it was a pain. Yeah. There's my mom, really. She's the one that really helped me do a lot of that stuff because I was still a teenager. Did you try to go Army and Air Force, too? I did. Uh, I didn't not necessarily yeah. Air Force, but uh, West Point, you know, go Army. Yeah. I was in the Army ROTC scholarships, potentially. I was dealing with the shady recruiters. They're like, yeah, you could join the National Guard. You're not going to deploy or anything <laughs> like that. I'd have been straight Iraq, you know? Yeah. Yeah. Okay, so... Everyone does a sport at a service academy, and right. everyone knows by now your sport was boxing, right? But you'd never boxed before. So how did you really take to it? Was this like, was there like this moment where you're like, man, I just love boxing? I equate it to the military, right? It's like, you know, when I was, I mean, I wasn't like the most confident kid. Like I was riding a bench in high school, you know what I mean? Like if we weren't yeah. up, I played basketball, I was on varsity basketball team. But like unless we were winning by like 60 points, and there was less than, you know, two minutes in the game, like I wasn't getting in, you know? Um, and so, you know, when you're trying to go to the military and stuff, this was at a time when like everybody wanted to be a Navy SEAL. Like, I don't know if that's this generation now, like they probably prefer like esports, but back in the day, everybody wanted to be a Navy SEAL. And you, why did you want to be a Navy SEAL, right? You saw the posters, you know what I mean? It yeah. was something that the aura they gave off. And it's like, you look at that poster 
and you're like, man, whatever he has, I want, you know? And you're like, well, I guess I got to go be a Navy SEAL to get that. It was the same thing with boxing, right? The first time I was, uh, at first when I went to Navy, I wanted to do a team, a traditional team sport. And I knew that the only, that I was looking at walk-on sports. And one of the sports I found that they took walk-ons on was crew, right? Mm-hmm. So this was like yeah. this was pre-CrossFit for me and everything like that. So I'm like, oh, I'll just join the crew team. They take walk-ons. And we had to run like three miles just to get to the boat shed out there. You know, this is during like our plebe summer, which is like our boot camp, essentially. I got there yeah. to the shed thinking I'm about to get on some boats. And it was just a bunch of ergs. And I was like pulling on these <laughs> things so we throw up. And I was like, this is stupid. You know, I don't want to do this. And a buddy of mine was like, you should come try for boxing. He's like, you know, honor, courage, hard work, blood, sweat, and tears. You know, all the cliche yeah. stuff. So then yeah. I go to practice one day. And the first day, man, the boxing coach there, a guy named Jim McNally, he teaches us, like, how to throw a jab, right cross, keep our hands up. And then he makes us spar the very first day, right? Like, right off the bat. And it was just like, wait, what? You know? He's like, yeah, get a partner. You guys are going to do three one-minute rounds, like, the very first day. Because that's his way of weeding people out, too. And I just yeah. remember the adrenaline rush from that sparring session was just, like, overwhelming, right? It just felt so... I don't know, man. It was like something different. It's like very animalistic. I, like, I can't explain it. It was just something different, right? But what ended up happening was I just was like, man, you mean people like live in this world? Like this is what they do? That they can step in a boxing ring and it's like playing pickup basketball for them? I was like, I want that, you know? And that's what it was that drew me to sport. It was like I wanted yeah. whoever made a guy feel like he could lace up gloves, put on headgear, and just, you know, operate like it's nobody's business, right? And I've that's why I fell in love with it. What do you think would happen if more people participated in combat sports? I think we probably have less shooting and less murders and less everything, to be honest. Because I think yeah. we box, and I, we, sh- we might even be having less racial unrest, to be honest. Because there's something like, I'm serious, like when you box and you, you fight somebody else, another human being, you become almost like brothers or something. Because you're like sharing an experience that only you two will have. You know? Yeah. And it like brings out the best in both of you. And I say that like wholeheartedly, like I I was a boxer. I compete at the national level. I would have guys that I fought multiple times and we would never talk throughout each other out the year or nothing, right? We're not buddy-buddy. But after the fight, it's like, man, I love you like a brother. You know, it's like, it's this weird, just experience that you share. Yeah, it's strange when you see guys go a bunch of rounds against each other and the bell rings and they just hug it out. Yeah. It's just, it's different to a lot of people, right? Who haven't fought someone else right it's like you know people better than their own family you know because you're yeah. like seriously when you hit someone with your hardest punch you know the hardest thing you got you crank it and it hits him and he takes it or you drop him on the canvas and he gets up off the ground right like that tells you a lot about that individual and vice versa so again you guys are learning about each other you know and it's just this experience you go through you won three national championships at 175 pounds. Was that sophomore through senior year? Did it take you like a year year to get to that level? Yeah, so the first year I actually got to go to nationals, but I didn't make it out of the um, – because college boxing is a little unique, right? In the boxing, you can't do boxing like most sports, right? So, like, I'll give you an example. Like, if you're a well-funded boxing program like Ohio State, right, mm-hmm. and you can recruit a top talent that's got like 60 fights, and then you recruit a kid from like – Essex Community College, <laughs> you know, he's got zero fights. Like, that 60-fight kid will kill that guy, like, legitimately. Yeah. And so that's yeah. basically what happened. And so they got rid of boxing at the NCAA level. 
and it transitioned to a club sport. And so in club, you can't have more than like 10 amateur fights by the time you start, you know, so that they try to kind of match people up around, you know, similar skill sets or whatever. But it's fair game. The first year, the learning curve is really hard because you're all figuring out how to box, you know. Um, if you yeah. come in, you got, you know, a little bit of experience, you got zero experience, you're still going up with a guy that could potentially have 10 amateur fights, which could be still, you know, people spend their whole lives in the gym and still only get 10 amateur fights. So, you you know, you could still be going up against it. But after that first year and you learn how to, like, protect yourself, defend yourself, it's like fair game. But my first year, I went to nationals. I didn't make it out of quarterfinals because I got shook by the bright lights and everything else because um, it was yeah. in Reno, Nevada at the El Dorado Hotel and Casino. So we had the bright lights. It was like college sports television. It was like CBS. It had all this kind of stuff. And I just wasn't ready for it, right? Like I was just showing up there, just happy to compete, you know, happy to go to nationals with the Navy boxing team. And after that experience, I was like, you know, next year I'm going to come back. Like I'm not coming here to compete. I'm coming here to win. What changed about your mindset? I started telling myself that I was going to be a national champ. You know, I remember, man, like at the quarterfinals, right? We're watching these. I lose the first round, get I get dropped out of the tournament right away, right? Because it's mm -hmm. quarterfinals and my finals finals. And the the night of the national championships, they used to do the champions, uh, the march to the ring, you know? So, like, you have the guys that are going to fight that night. They're all walking to the ring. The, they meet in the middle, you know, to shake hands. And I remember my, my assistant boxing coach looked at me. He's like, that's going to be you next year. And it just kind of stuck mm -hmm. in my head. And so when I came in the gym after being a freshman who had opportunity to go to nationals, you know, with the guys, I was I just came back next year focused. I was like, hey, I'm going to be a national champ this year. I'm going to be a national champ this year. I just kept saying it. And then I just did it. So you also like you didn't just train with other cadets or you call them midshipmen, right? Yeah. Uh, so you talk about like going into inner city gyms and training with people who had like a wildly different experience than you. And w was that one of the keys to your success at that point? Absolutely. So that was one of the things that changed too, because after that summer, I was like, all right, I want to go to national. So when I went home that summer, you know, I looked for a boxing gym, you know, in my town. It was one at this old rinky dinky gas station run by some like force reconnaissance Marine from Vietnam. It was just old school. It was just a Mexican boxing gym. Just be honest. And I went in there and I started training with those guys and it was just a lot different, but I was hungry. I wanted to learn, you know? And then after that, I finessed the coach from the Naval Academy. I was like, Hey, let us go to New York city for spring break. You know, the year of usually cause the Navy boxing team stays back for spring break. We run a training camp. Everybody goes on okay. spring break and we all stay back and train. And I convinced the coach to let us go to New York city to train at some other gyms. And so we did a trip to New York city which is why I'm here in the New York City metro area now. But we trained in Brooklyn at all these different gyms. We also trained back in Maryland at some inner city gyms too. And that was when I like was like, okay, I found my grit, you know? Like I was developing yeah. the skill sets. I was doing the work. I was getting beat up. But I, knew, I just felt like, man, if I can hang at this level, I can go inside the collegiate level and hold my own. So when you were training with these kids, like what did you notice about the difference between like your goals and aspirations and opportunities and theirs and how'd that affect like the way that you fought or the, even the way you just talked to them? Yeah. Like again, I played basketball in high school. So I've been to some spots and again, I'm a, you know, grew up in my environment, right? Well, I had a mom, she was educated. So I'm not going to sit up here and say like I lived in the projects or anything like that, but I will tell yeah. you boxing gyms are found at the bottom of the barrel. 
You know, like yeah. it's really like, I mean, off the cuff, like in the hood, a lot of these places. And so being an academy grad, kind of going into space, it was like foreign to them, a lot of them, mm. you know. Um, so they were completely different from us. Like they were, you know, just trying to make it. They were either in the streets or in the gym. Coaches got to do yeah. everything in their power to keep them out the streets, you know, versus me and my teammates. We're like, at the end of the day, we're going to graduate, become officers, you know, go serve, probably get out start businesses, become work in corporate America, become doctors, lawyers, et cetera. And that wasn't the case for a lot of these kids in the gym. As a man of color, you know, I have this uplift tradition, right? This idea of lifting as you climb. And mm -hmm. it's just stuck in my head. I was like, this is a broken system. You know, boxing is a great sport, right? But it's so underfunded. Like a lot of these kids didn't have uniforms like we had at Navy boxing. The gyms were like borderline illegal, <laughs> you know, from a, a safety perspective. And that just kind of stuck in my head. I was like, hey, I want to do something with this. I want to do a boxing program in the inner city that is more similar to the service academies and bring in some leadership to the space. What is it about boxing movies? Why does everyone love boxing movies? And why are there so many? And why are they so good? Um, well, a lot of them. Because boxing is just pure, man. I think everybody wants to learn. Everybody wants to test themselves. Look at the Spartan races and all that kind of stuff, right? Just this idea of like really pushing themselves. But the thing is, most people are scared of boxing, you know, mm. like they want to learn it, but they don't really want to get in the ring and go toe to toe with another human being. Right. It's like this. They're terrified of it. So they romanticize about it. And it's it's carried through in movies and everything like that as well. You know, and this idea of watching the underdog, you know, watching a guy get himself up off the canvas and go the distance and the backstory yeah. and perseverance. I mean, it's all real. Like, it's true. Do you actually like boxing movies? I, I kind of breezed over that because I know a lot of military people don't even like military movies. Yeah, I like a lot of boxing movies. I do. I love the Rocky movies. You know, you can't go wrong with the Rocky movies. I always watch, even for me, when I get warmed up, I get fired up. I watch the training scenes, you know, Southpaw and, you know, all those movies. Yeah. And to be honest, like that, a lot of those movies, man, like my master's, I got a master's in American studies. Yeah. So I study like film and culture and stuff like that. And a lot of the stories, right, that you see in the films, right, mm -hmm. they don't even come close to the reality of, like, how dire some of these boxers and the situations they come from. Yeah. You know, so the stories aren't joking, right? Like, they do come from broken homes, rough backgrounds and everything like that. But, like, I mean, it can be even worse in real life. What top three Rocky movies? For me, it's got to, it goes three, then Creed, then four. I like two. I think I like two. I like one and then probably three. Oh, yeah. I like Rocky too. Yeah, I like Rocky too. <laughs> I mean, what? how about that? Just uh, chasing a chicken down. I love that scene. Yeah. Oh, yeah. That's like the bare bones. Like if you can catch a chicken, you can catch Creed. It's kind of like precursor to if you can dodge a wrench, you can dodge a ball. Yep. Like uh, a little wisdom from uh, Mickey there. Like the old school trainers, man. Those guys. That's how it is. Oh, yeah. I'm beyond. I'm telling you, man, what, how it is in the movies. That's really how it is in the gyms. They got the old school guy thinks he knows everything. You know, he's a little rough around the edge. He's got grease stains on his shirts and everything like that. But it's just like, man, it's just the purest form of like training. Uh, going back to like service and you chose infantry, which I think I heard somewhere that, you know, you joined because you want to do the hard job. Right. And uh, you talked already about when you see a Navy SEAL on the poster, you're like, man, something about it. I just want to be part of that. 
So out of the Navy Academy or Naval Academy, you chose Marines and you chose infantry. Did you get what you wanted out of that? And, and sort of what was your experience like being an infantry officer? Honestly, I did. Right. So I definitely have a mental toughness in me. Mm-hmm. I have grit. I mean, like on paper, it's weird. Like, I'll be honest, like humble brag on paper. I kind of sound like a badass, right? Like national champion, Marine infantry officer, all that kind of stuff. Yeah. Now, do I necessarily see myself as that? No. But the fact of the matter is, like, I did do all those things you see. Yeah. You know, I did go to the infantry officer course. I did go to Afghanistan. You know what I mean? I was a cap platoon commander. Like, I did all this kind of stuff. Um, so I did get that, right? Like, I got mm-hmm. what I wanted, right? But at the other end of the spectrum, man, I was up against it. And, you know, I talk about my podcast, but, like, yo, as a black man, you know, we don't have the strongest track record in the infantry, let alone as officers, you know? Mm-hmm. And so I had to deal with those dynamics of being accepted and being in an environment where there's not a lot of people that look like you and, you know, not really being able to be your true self. And, you know, I'm halfway through your episode. It's called Let's Talk About Race. And you're talking to one of your old buddies from the Marines who's a white guy. And you guys are talking about these types of issues. Did you see any progress while you were in? And what were some ways you dealt with what you saw? I tried to do my best. I mean, I had progress with me, yeah. like personal progress, you know. Mm-hmm. I just tried to do a good job of mentoring, you know, young lieutenants as best I could. Just trying to help them, like, not make the same mistakes I did. Um, but as far as, like, progress, unfortunately, with regards to, like, African-American infantry officers, yeah. I can't say I saw much progress at all. I think it actually goes reverse. And, like, one of the reasons I call my podcast Native Son, Confessions of a Native Son, too, is, you know, um, one thing we don't talk about in this country, okay. there's a lot of minority and diversity and inclusion programs available, right? You've got the affirmative action, you got all these different things. And when these programs were originally enacted, they were put in place to benefit African-Americans in this country who were descendants of slaves, right? And those of us who had to suffer through Jim Crow and our parents and their history, Okay. What's kind of end up what's end up happening at a lot of places is those numbers for African-Americans descended from slaves. Right. Born and raised in this country. Right. Those numbers are very, very stagnant. They haven't made any progress in those areas. And so what you see happening is now is in a lot of institutions in the military, in education, you know, corporate America to look more inclusive than we really are. They had to start inviting a lot of other groups to fill boxes for minorities, Mm. you know, instead of saying you kind of pull everybody together and say, oh, we have this percentage of minorities or you say black. But what is black? You know, because if you come from an affluent family in Nigeria and you move to America, that's a lot different than, you know, Jamal in the south side of Chicago. But we're all getting pulled in this thing and it's not accurate. Right. And so what I've kind of brought up is I keep pushing this this message that if you look at the number of African-Americans, right, in higher education, in corporate America, in the military officer, it's very low. It is stagnant. It hasn't moved. And so that's where I say I haven't seen a lot of progress. Hmm. It's a very, uh, it's like a family business, right? It's like you're more likely to be a military officer if you're parents served or your grandparents served and were also officers to be enlisted you probably just need to come across a recruiter and be at the right point in your life right yeah i think you have a group of people that have been and we're seeing it now right like 
people starting to like, I like to tease on my podcast. America just found out we're all black, right? Like their classmates and stuff. They're like, wait a second, Mike's, Mike's black. No fool. I've been black. You just never acknowledged it. You said, you know, I don't see color because you never saw me. And so now people are kind of having to look around and they're realizing that their office, you know, <laughs> their coworkers, you know, they're boards. Yeah. They're looking around. It's like for the first time in America's lives, and it's sad it took till 2020. They're like, man, we really don't have black people in this room. Hmm. And why is that? And so when I talk about the low numbers, you know, one of the things is, you know, we have to realize that there, a group of people have been unable to participate in the traditional economy. So a lot of times when we're trying to reach these diverse groups, we're looking at it through the lens of everyone else instead of looking at it through a lens that meets them where they are. Right. Right. And this is not just within, you know, corporate America culture. I'm going through this now myself. I just launched an incubator thrive. Mm -hmm. Right. And I'm going to send out an email to all our donors. When I launched this program and when I moved to Newark, I moved to Newark with the intent of working with young black males. That was my goal. Right. I opened my gym. Who walks in? Bunch of Latino males and females. Right. And that's why outside of my podcast, I typically use the term people of color. Right. So I said, you know, black and brown people. But this doesn't take away from the fact that, you know, there's a demographic out there that is still hurting, you know. And so what am I doing? What am I not doing to reach that demographic? You know, and I test and I try something else and you test and you try something else. What's end up happening to a lot of people, they're just comfortable going down the same rabbit hole. And then they say, oh, well, they don't want the services or whatever. Instead of saying, hey, what are we doing wrong or what is it about what we're offering that this demographic does not see a value added. And how important is relatability to you? Like when you interact with these kids, do they see a part of themselves in you? And is like, is that one of the ways that you're really connecting with them? Yeah, it's very important to me. It's why I live in Newark, to be honest. You can't come in these communities and come in and out, right? You know, one of the, the byproducts of the civil rights movement was we lost a the black middle class, essentially being in a black mm-hmm. neighborhood in a black community. So now what you end up having is if there is a lot of talent out there, we tend not to live in the communities where other people like us tend to look or where the people who look like us live. Right. So if I work at a corporation in New York City, I make a lot of money. Chances are I'm not living in Newark. And if I'm in Chicago, I ain't living on the south side. I'm probably living downtown, someplace nice, whatever. So what ends up happening is we don't have that human capital spreading around in that local community. So for me, it's very important that I live in the city of Newark and be an advocate for the city because I want my kids to see me, you know, out in town, right? I want them to see me in the neighborhood. Yeah. It's another reason I keep my beard. You know, I keep my beard, I keep my mohawk fade because, and, you know, I'm just now becoming self-awareness to these realizations of, you know, when you go into some of these neighborhoods and you try to talk to these kids, you look like Clark Kent and Superman. They can't see themselves in you, you know, versus walking in and they're like, man, I can't be Superman, but I can be Mike Stedman. Because he looks like me, you know, I can see myself in him. There's relatability to it. Mm-hmm. But we have to acknowledge ourselves as people of color. Sometimes we look so foreign to our own people that they don't even recognize us. I like what you said about really embedding yourself in the community. Are there any things that you saw when you're in the military, like when you went to Afghanistan, for instance, where you have to show that local population that you're making an attempt to have some buy-in you're kind of you're there with them um you're willing to take like a a real interest in what's going on for them to actually have some change go on it wasn't actually 
in Afghanistan. It was actually Jacksonville, North Carolina. Okay. All right. So when I got stationed in the Marine Corps, I was stationed in Jacksonville, North Carolina. Typical Marine Corps town, like bars and strip clubs and Applebee's. Yeah. You know, all the stuff I left when I left Texas. I was like, man, Applebee's. <laughs> I want sushi, man. Why am I eating Applebee's and Cheddar's? It's crazy. But you go back to that environment, right? When I was a young second lieutenant, all the officers lived at the beach, right? No one wanted to live out in town. Mm. Why? Because we don't want to run into enlisted Marines. You kind of want to be separated, right? A lot of the senior enlisted would live in town or the old head officers. But for the young lieutenants, we used to live out the beach. It's like 45 minutes away. All right. When I was on deployment, okay, I went to deployment to Afghanistan. And then my second deployment, I went to Okinawa, right? Okinawa was a small little base and it was just the infantry unit there, mm -hmm. right? And the support staff. And I would go work out. Right. Every time I go in my gym, I go in the gym, work out in the evening. I would see my Marines there working out. Right. And then it becomes this point of like they get used to seeing you. So now you got a little thing with each other. Right. And so now you're walking around basically, like, hey, sir, you're going to be in the gym this evening. You know, little kind of stuff. So it wasn't this sense of like, you know, I think especially for young officers, it's like you want to be distant, you know, from your enlisted, which is understandable. Right. You don't want to be fraternizing, too. But it's like, yo, yeah. showing people how to act, how you live. You know, what I mean, I just realized it was more impactful for me as a leader. When I'm coming in and talking to my Marines about staying in shape, getting after it, whatever, and then they see you, what, staying in shape, getting after it, you know? And then when I moved back after that deployment, I lived closer to base. I didn't live at the beach, right? So I would go into, you know, the food, gro the grocery store, and you bump into your Marines and their wives, you know? And they're, hey, what's going on, sir? Hey, this is my wife, you know? Or you, they see their kids. And so it was just a thing. And I realized that that was very impactful. Then I started training at a local CrossFit gym. And guess what? A lot of enlisted Marines and their wives and everything. But you build relationships. And so for me, I just found out that that was more impactful than trying to, like, isolate myself from the those that I'm trying to set the tone for. Did you coach boxing to Marines while you were serving? I did. I've been coaching boxing the entire time. I mean, I took my gloves and mitts with me to Afghanistan. You know, we used to hold mitts at the patrol base, right? I would train Marines at, you know, for platoon PT. But when we went to Okinawa, Okinawa was, I started, they had a little boxing gym. And by boxing gym, I mean, it was like a room with yoga mats and one heavy bag, right? But I started a little boxing club out there, you know? And we did that and we trained in the evening. We ran a little boxing club. How is that leading by example? You're working out at their level, you know, for the ones that you're bringing up. That There's a sacrifice to that. And it's something that it sounds is, is very meaningful to you for, for bringing up people up with you. Was there a certain age where you started doing that, where you started seeing that? I can definitely say it was my peers from the Naval Academy I think I started to learn from. You know, because the Naval Academy was the first place I'd ever been to where people, I saw people make stuff from scratch. You know, midshipmen are just wired different. Same thing at West Point. You know, they go to school and they're like, hey, we want a jujitsu team. Boom, they start a jujitsu team. That's just what they do. I never seen that. It was just kind of like, oh, you go to school, something, there's a program or something not offered, and then that's just what it is versus people kind of getting after it. And so I think just seeing that and being exposed to people like that, that start stuff, the skydiving team, the jujitsu team, you know, the mountaineering team, I think it planted a seed in my mind early on. And then once you realize is once you get out into the civilian world or even while you're in and you become a guy that starts stuff, you start to separate yourself from the pack and you kind of step into that leadership outside of the leadership that is ordained on you for the sake of being an officer. 
Hey everyone, you've heard me talk about the Coast to Coast Foundation for a few months and the ride is finally happening, right now, blowing through your town. Make sure you're following them on Facebook, Instagram, or Twitter, at CXC Foundation, or by visiting their website directly at coastxcoast.org. Look for online auctions for some cool gear or go buy some swag directly from their online store. The Coast to Coast Foundation was founded in honor of Sergeant First Class Ryan Savard of 3rd Special Forces Group and U.S. Special Operations Command. It helps wounded Special Operations veterans close the financial gap between their lasting medical needs and what's traditionally covered. The Foundation's annual cross-country motorcycle ride, the Ride for the Fallen, stops in more than a dozen cities across the country to strengthen communities and raise funds. All proceeds from the Coast to Coast Foundation go to assisting veterans in recovery from service and combat-related injuries. This year's ride culminates on Friday, September 11th at Arlington National Cemetery. So if you're not already following, these next two weeks will be quite impactful. Go ahead and get involved. Celebrate, remember, honor. Coast to Coast. So at what point did you start thinking about life after the military? Oh, in Afghanistan. Yeah. Oh, yeah? Why was that? I, I read two books. Right. Yeah. The first book was a book called Matterhorn by Carl Morlantis. It is my top It's one of my top five books of all time. The book is about a infantry officer in Vietnam. It's fiction, but it's based off of some of his stuff. Right. Um, a Rhodes Scholar, Navy Cross recipient. I mean, this guy's a man and he wrote a fiction book about his experience in Vietnam. And it follows the life of this infantry platoon. I mean, this infantry company, this infantry battalion in Vietnam all the power dynamics between him and his company commander and everything like that. And the battalion commander and how, you know, there's this giant disconnect between the higher leadership and those on the ground. And you got Marines dying and all this kind of craziness, literally reading that book. It felt like it was exactly what I was experiencing in Afghanistan. And it made me realize that the institution isn't changing because the stuff he was talking about 40 years prior was the same stuff we were dealing with in Afghanistan at the time. The second book I read was a book called My View from the Corner by Angelo Dundee, who trained Muhammad Ali. And he's talking about his first boxing gym, training fighters and all that kind of stuff. And I was like, man, that is a life I want. That's what I want to do. And this was just being, being at my patrol base in Afghanistan. Because it's not like the movies. You know, they watch the movies. Marines, let's go, green team. You know, get on the helicopters. <laughs> that happens. And then you spend like 12 hours doing nothing. Maybe some units have a firefight every day or something, but there's a lot of just mundane time, right? And so you got to protect your mind. So I, I was reading a lot of books out there, and uh, mm -hmm. that just stuck with me. And I was like, hey, when I come back, I want to, you know, do some more boxing. And I came up with this plan to basically I want to be the head boxing coach at the Naval Academy. How far before you got out was this? And how, how much were you planning? It was about three years before, and I hadn't done much. I just was like, when I get back from Afghanistan – I made up my mind that I was going to join the Marine Corps boxing team. So what was that like? Is that like a special assignment? Yeah. So they have these sports teams, you know, they had Marine Corps boxing, wrestling, whatever. And it's a billet mm -hmm. just like anything else. So you get paid to. And at first there was a little guilt about it because when I first came in the Marine Corps, I didn't want to do that. I just wanted to be an infantry officer, yeah. you know, serve my country, God Corps. Then you go to Afghanistan and you're like, all right, there ain't nothing glamorous about getting blown up, <laughs> you know? So once you start to, understand war a little better and understand yourself a little better. I just felt like I had nothing to prove. I was like, I went to Afghanistan, did my thing. Now it was time to kind of go back and, you know, try to start building a life. If you're put in charge of a group of Marines, how do you 
make that balance between carrying out the you know orders from higher levels of command and watching out for your unit oh it's very hard actually you know but you have to do it i mean the the, the marine corps is an institution so it's a system mm-hmm. it's kind of set up you know with like checks and balances on it but it was a struggle for me mentally i will tell you a lot of us have become officers i would like to think we're very idealist right right we do come for the right reasons yeah but then you get when, again, you get in these environments and you realize that there are things at play that you did not sign up for necessarily, you know, and that it's just different. Like when I was going to Afghanistan, I was told that we were going to put the ANA in charge, yeah. that the Afghan security forces were going to take the lead and we were kind of be on the back seat. Versus when I got out there, we were kind of in charge. You couldn't trust the Afghan security forces. Yeah. I had spent this whole time like building up my Marines and training them on and everything. But the reality of the situation on the ground was vastly different than what we had prepared for. Hmm. And so mentally that starts to bug you, especially as like IEDs start going off, Marines get killed, all that kind of stuff. But staying focused on a mission, you start to wonder, like, what's the purpose? What's the point? What were some ways you did stay focused? For me, I just embraced my role as a leader, you know, because you got to keep their morale up. The officer can't run around talking about this is stupid. Why are we doing this? You know? And you hear the Marines start to break down and say that stuff, and you got to check them on it. And so with that understanding, I just realized I had a higher expectation of me. Yeah, it's really easy to get jaded in the military. I think it's part of our culture. Um, Complaining is part of our culture, but it's not really like it's complaining in that I'm still going to do my job. I just want to vent about it. Right. But. How does it feel where you, as an officer, you can't let other people hear you complain? Right. Right. Is it tough? Do you have someone to that you can talk to? Um, no, it was very hard. It was very challenging, which is why I bring up the whole, when we first started talking about it, of like, all of that is amplified for minorities, you know, because yeah. now it's like, you're really alone. You already don't have a lot of people that look like you. And now on top of that, you got to deal with those dynamics, which you just talked about. There is intersectionality mm-hmm. when you're like out at base and you're like, damn, I want to talk about this, but I can't even talk about it to my peers, you know, because I don't have anything in common with them. Yeah. And you're like, damn, I have more in common with some of these enlisted Marines than you do the officer corps in general. So it's a struggle. I think I'm just now starting to talk about it on my podcast, to be honest, yeah. because it's bringing up a lot of memories and stuff I forgot about. Um, and I'll tell you one, uh, I made a casual comment to my girlfriend about it. And then she goes up and looks up articles and says, you weren't lying. When I was in Afghanistan, right, there was this thing called Baji Bahi, right? Child boys, right? That's what they used to say, yeah. right? The dancing boys of Afghanistan. So it's pedophilia is really what it is. Afghan men would make Afghan boys dress up like women, young boys, and do all kind of stuff to them. And I had made a comment to my girlfriend about this. This was like not even like six or seven months ago. And next thing I know, she sends me this New York Times article about it. And she's like, you weren't lying. I was like, I know I'm not lying. I was like, but I I forgot about it. I, it was buried. It just, I mean, why would, you, why would you talk about it? Why would you think about it? And sometimes the Afghan police and the security forces were engaging in this behavior. And it was known, you know, and that was what the article had talked about, about how soldiers were put in compromising situations, you know, and now they were having to deal with that trauma and stuff from that. Now, thankfully for me, I didn't have to, I didn't deal with any trauma or anything like that. Before I was going to Afghanistan, I read all the books, watched all the documentaries, did all that kind of stuff. Ask me how much of that stuff I've watched. <laughs> it's like it's like a forgotten history, you know? Yeah. Yeah, it's tough, you know, having to having to deal with someone else's culture, but 
balancing that with your own personal truths and what you know is right, right? And I know there was a there was a story maybe like two or three years ago where there was one or two special forces guys who went and roughed up some police chief because he was keeping one of these kids. I was never really close to a situation like that. Kind of knew it went on. Um, I was doing other things, but that's gotta like it's it's just so tough. There's so many other levels to being over there that are not on the recruiting posters, right? And uh, and and rarely show up in the movies. Maybe they do now. Yep. Yeah. Okay, so you kind of said when you, you knew that you were going to move to Newark before you got out. This was influenced by being able to visit different boxing gyms while you were at Navy, and you really like, you know, maybe being in more of a gritty neighborhood and getting to connect with, with that kind of community. So how much did you have set up when you actually left the Marines, checked out, moved to Newark? How much did you have going on and and how long did it take you to build what you have now? I had zero set up mm. right now. One of the reasons I chose Newark, bro, was when I was at the Naval Academy, I had an opportunity to do an internship at a private school in Newark called St. Benedict's Prep, which caters to it's an all boys school, which caters to young men of color. Mm. 90% of the population is black and Latino and 90% of students that go to the school can't afford to go there. So they subsidize it with private donors and whatever. Right. So I fell in love with Newark through that school. Right. So I've been talking to the headmaster of the school throughout my time, you know, at the Naval Academy and the military, I did two internships there. And I told him when I was getting out the military, I was going to come back and potentially start a boxing program. And right before, like the last few months I was in the Marine Corps, I mean, probably like that last year, right? I basically had to like, can I swear, can I cuss on this podcast or not? Yeah, go ahead. Yeah. I shit or get off the pot. You know, this idea of like, am I going to go to grad school at like Texas A&M or something? Mm-hmm. But I was like, you know, it was like, even when I was in college, I majored in history. People are like, what are you going to do with a history degree? <laughs> and I'm like, I don't know, but I want to do history. And now I got my master's in pretty much uh, history, you know, yeah. um, because it's what I'm passionate about. But there's all these pools that try to keep you from going after your passion. Mm-hmm. And I just was like, man, I got burned the ships. I'm moving to Newark. I'm going to start a boxing program. People are like, how are you going to make money? How are you going to do all this kind of stuff? In my mind, I was like, hey, I'll go work at this private school. I'll grab a couple of kids, start teaching them, join a gym around town. I'll figure it out. So when I moved to Newark, right, I had a U-Haul and just a bunch of stuff in my apartment. I had nothing here, literally nothing. The first night, I slept on a couch at the private school because my room wasn't ready. Cause I was living on campus. I had no idea what my job would be either. I just was like, I'm coming. And I just drove on an email and a phone call. Just figured it out from there. Yeah. Part of my contract was that I would get to coach boxing. Okay. You know, understood. and I ran the res, they ended up making me in charge of the residence hall at the private school, which means I worked in the evening. Right. Okay. So I would coach boxing from about three 30 to five 30 each day then get back to the residence hall and feed the kids and, you know, put them through, T- study hall and bed them down and everything at six from six to like you know seven o'clock the following day and so basically i built a lifestyle that would allow me to coach boxing and i did my gym for very little i got a free space from the city of newark i approached the city of newark after about a year and said hey you guys got a space somewhere i can build a boxing gym it won't i won't it won't cost you anything i just need a space they gave me a location in the back of a rec center a leaky rec center and was like will this work i was like yep and then we just figured it out I raised a couple months, a little bit of money, like $9,000, nothing crazy from just like the veteran community. And we launched the gym and built it and then just built it over time. 
And you have a partner with that? I did, yeah. A guy named Gary Bloor. So me and him started that together. And did you guys have like uh, complementary skills and abilities you were bringing to this? Yeah, initially. So I got the space and um, I reached out to Gary because Gary was big in the graffiti. And I knew that I wanted the gym to have a certain aesthetic. Mm. And I reached out to Gary and he's like all about it. And so we decided to name the gym, you know, Ironbound. And so he was bringing the graffiti and all that kind of stuff. I was bringing the box and stuff. And we were going to build a nonprofit around it. So Ironbound is uh, like a district within Newark. And it's very industrial. And it's got a cool name that kind of goes along with that cool aesthetic. Right. Exactly. So I actually wanted to ask this, too. There's a lot of vets that come out looking for jobs, right? but I don't think that you were one of them. So how do vets become creators rather than workers? I haven't actually read the book, right? But I'm a big Seth Godin fan. And I know he talks about this thing of being a linchpin, just kind of making yourself essential. And for me, like the only job I've honestly ever applied for was like working at Chick-fil-A in high school. For some whatever reason, I've been very blessed in that regard. I just try to bring value to people and I work on myself a lot. And I don't think enough veterans think about that. Mm -hmm. For me, I just try to make myself valuable. You know, I try to find something that I'm uniquely qualified to do and then pitch it. And at the boys home, right? It's like you got an African-American Naval Academy graduate who wants to come work with young men of color at the school, Mm -hmm. right? They're like, we'll make a job for them. You know, it was like, you start building a gym and then You know, you start getting on TV and they're like, that's the residence hall guy. What is going on over here? But you just move and operate differently. And now even with like podcasting and entrepreneurship and, you know, all this kind of stuff, man, I just I just grow. I learn and try to make myself valuable. Yeah. So do you source your ongoing business knowledge here and there? Are there things you subscribe to or there are organizations that you stay in touch with? I know you went to Stanford Ignite which is like short duration, high intensity business accelerator. You're involved in bunker labs and we work veterans and residents. Is it about being in this ecosystem and just picking up uh, little things here and there along the way? Absolutely. It's a combination of things, right? So I'm a big fan of, uh, see, I didn't know this, right? I didn't know this when I was younger. I'm an autodidact, Hmm. right? I'm a self-taught learner, right? I need to play around with stuff. And then I need to figure out how to, I need to like play around with it. I'm not a guy that can just sit inside a classroom and just, that's just not how I learn, right? I need to seek the knowledge myself, but we don't know this, right? When you're younger, nobody teaches us about self-assessments and all this kind of stuff. Yeah. You know, I've done probably like six incubators. Okay. I've done multiple self-assessments, right? So I have a better understanding of like who, how I learn and everything. And I like to say, I have like the hustlers MBA. You know, I piecemealed it through OJT, on-the-job training, right? I was a consultant where we work. I had a part-time consulting gig where we work. So I was able to do that, helping them build out the Veterans and Residence Program on the back end, going through the incubators, right, paying attention, watching. Then you become the guy that's just kind of like goes to like a business school page and looks up their syllabus and looks what books they're reading, you know, that kind of stuff. And you just kind of figured out, I use Audible, podcast. I mean, Audible is probably my university, to be honest. I got like 150 plus audio books on there. You kind of just mentioned this in stride, but uh, you said you just went to the city of Newark and asked them for some space. Not everyone would think to do that, right? But I, it's, it's like, I it's like slightly, slightly just audacious to be like, 
man, I want to build this thing. Maybe I could just get some space. So you, you want to work with me? Well, I'll tell you what ended up happening, though, right? So when I first moved here, I was working at St. Benedict's. The first thing I did was I just grabbed a group of kids and said, hey, you guys want to box? Cool. I found a local boxing gym, and I would drive them there every day, and we would train. Hmm. But I would have to pay their gym membership. And I was like, all right, this ain't a good business model. Because a lot of times, kids will do it for like a couple, you know, a week or something, then you don't see them anymore, yeah. right? So they're very like, whatever. So I was like, all right, I'm not doing that. I'm just going to train them in the residence hall. So we pushed the tables and chairs out the way. Then the city of Newark opened up a boxing gym called the Dorca Department of Recreation and Cultural Affairs, Dorca Boxing Academy. So it was a free gym inside a rec center, right? So they opened up this gym. Simultaneously, what happens? Shakur, Shakur Stevenson is fighting in the Olympics for the gold medal. Where is he from? Newark. Hmm. Boxing. Mm -hmm. You get what I'm saying? So he's bringing all that shine to the city. So Newark's very own is out here representing the United States, right? Heart to mind United States as a boxer. So there was a lot of attention being brought to boxing, right? So I was training my kids at that rec center space, and I built a relationship with the manager of recreation at that time. And so one day, I just text them. I literally text them and said, you guys got a space for a gym? You know, whatever. And uh, he's like, yeah. He's like, we'll look. And that's what we did. It was literally a text message. So your business is, it's a hybrid. It's part for-profit, part non-profit. So you do boxing classes with corporations, you coaching, you do, you know, like workplace kind of stuff. On top of that, you're teaching kids. You're probably putting in a ton of hours. I've listened to one of your other podcasts. You, uh, you said that you started building the nonprofit first, but that was probably in reverse from how most people do it. Yeah, it's the opposite of what you're supposed to do, apparently. I, I, I kind of consider myself like the reluctant entrepreneur, hmm. right? Like, I didn't even know what entrepreneurship was. I didn't know what a venture was. I'm not making this up, right? But I was like, well, they keep saying this term venture. What is that? But basically, I got this free space for a gym. I knew a couple things. One, I want to be free for the community. I didn't want kids to have to pay anything for it, right? That was my thing. That was a core belief. I think boxing should be free for kids in inner city. Mm -hmm. is my thing. And I was like, I need to fund this thing. How do I do it, right? And this is where the power of networks and human capital come in. Because I have a buddy. His name's Luke Finney, right? He's a Navy SEAL, went to Naval Cam, whatever. And I picked him up from the airport. And he had just got back from this program called Stanford Ignite. And when I was telling him about what I was doing, he's like, Mike, you got to go to this program. You know, he's like, you got to go, man. Like, it's great, blah, blah, blah. Not only did he encourage me to go, when it came time for the application to open, he sent me reminders and was holding me accountable. He was like, hey, did you apply to this thing? And made recommendations. And so when I went to Stanford that summer, right, I didn't know anything about entrepreneurship and I pitched Ironbound. Mm -hmm. You know, that was the thing. It was just a non, it was a nonprofit. But then when I was out there, it was marinating. I'm like, man, is there more I could do with this? You know, I came back and I was still doing the nonprofit thing. And I was just, I kept pitching Ironbound as a nonprofit. I did like multiple accelerators here locally, NJIT, New Jersey Institute of Technology, Rutgers. I took Rutgers social impact class, uh, social impact strategy, did a bunch of stuff um, and kept pitching Ironbound on the nonprofit front. But what ended up happening was as I started to look at doing Ironbound full time, I said, I need to pay my bills. How am I going to pay my bills? And I was like, well, I'll just train clients, but I'm not going to train them inside the gym though because I created that safe space. So I reached out to a buddy of mine who's a venture capitalist that I met through Bunker Labs named Paul Capon. 
And he always offered to like meet with me and, you know, discuss like, hey, if you need help with something, whatever. So I sent him an email like midnight one night and was like, hey, I'm looking at other options because I want to leave my job at some point. We'll let to pick your brain about it. And we met and he was like, yo, you're going to train clients? Just do it under Ironbound. And he's like, honestly, I think companies will pay you for what you do. Mm-hmm. And so that's I got exposed to like corporate wellness, which I didn't even know was a thing and just launched that. I quit my job and I launched it. Yes. Which is not the thing to do. Get paid clients before you quit your job. <laughs> okay. So like, what are those types of people you interact with? You kind of have to take a different stance with them, right? Because they're never going to be like competitive boxers. You're coming to maybe make their lives a little better, make them a little healthier and introduce them to a new thing, right? Yeah. So what's it like interacting with that population? For me, it was fine, to be honest. Okay. Because I'm a Marine, I'm a Marine officer, Naval Academy guy. You know, and it's just like you walk into these environments and I could just as easily work here or do all that kind of stuff. And so you just felt comfortable. It was not a big lift for me. And to be honest, like a lot of them are less in less shape than a lot of the kids I work with. Mm -hmm. So the boxing is a lot easier and they really appreciate you as like the SME, you know, coming in. So I didn't have any problems with the main problem was getting used to being a business owner. That was a part like invoicing clients. And the other thing too, see, this is what they don't teach you in like business school and stuff about entrepreneurship. Think we think we want these like big clients, you know, the big companies, the big corporations, whatever. They don't always make the best clients. If I'm being honest, I enjoy small businesses more. You know, they like really appreciate you. They pay you on time. It becomes really, really relational. Well, it sounds like you're, you're like a relationship kind of guy, right? Yeah. And I, I enjoy it. You know, like one of my clients, man, he brings me lunch sometimes. You know, he's like, hey, I'm getting lunch, you know, before we train. What do you want? Oh, that kind of stuff. Let's me work out of his office. I got my my incubator. Let's us incubate out of there. Mm-hmm. You know, it's like we need more of those clients and less of these clients. So how are you dealing with the covid on that front? Um, It was it was hard for like a week. You know, it was for a week after a week. Yeah. It, I mean, it's been hard the entire time. But when they canceled the when they canceled the NBA, that week that canceled NBA, my business, I was like the first line of like businesses shut down, hmm. you know? Yeah. It was just like when it was real to us, because I had, when I started my for-profit arm, I was making like $200 a week teaching boxing, which is like poverty. By the time COVID hit, I was up to like 7,500, 8K a month. I had one client pay me $1,000 a session, you know, every Monday. It was a Honda dealership. And it took me months to build up to that and then to have it gone like that. Cause I was like, man, how are these companies? They're not going to be paying for boxing. It's not whatever. So sure enough, all my four on-site clients went offline and I was just like, well, that's the end of my business. My gym was closed down. So I was like, all right, well, this is it. But I, one thing I did that I made a smart decision last year, I'm coming up on my one year mark. I joined a business cohort. I got a business coach. And I joined this program. And so we hold each other accountable. So they were, you know, my business coach was like, let's get going, man. We got to go. We got to move. Cohort member, the guy that does my apparel. He was the one that brought me in the group. He's like, let's go, man. What are we doing? We got to move. And so just being around that and having that helped me get up off the canvas a little bit. And I was like, all right, you know, we're socially driven. Our kids are at home. They're not doing anything. Let's just do free workouts on Instagram. So that's what we started. Then boom. Lo and behold, a lot of my clients started coming back online and were like, hey, can you do virtual classes? And I was like, yeah, I can. And I had a flag. I got my Ironbound flag. I've got audio visual equipment in here. 
And I started doing virtual boxing classes via Zoom. And then that's what I did. And that's what I did during COVID. Mm. That's what I've been doing. Are you, are you like uh, expanding your footprint now? Because, I mean, you can scale, right? You're not limited by where you can travel anymore. Or are you more focused on using this as an adjunct to get back to pre-COVID normal? I will tell you, teaching boxing over Zoom is not the same thing as in person. Yeah. And after a while, it started to become like soul draining. It was just like, feel like I was on this hamster wheel. And so I know I do need to quit being lazy and write out how I teach, how I train and hand it off to somebody else. But for me, it's always about the impact too. So I think my business, the way I do business is probably going to move a little bit slower because I'm not just moving one thing by itself. I'm moving the collective. Mm -hmm. So it's like I have this for-profit, but I have the non-profit as well. And it's very important for me that like, as we grow and build, I'm able to make sure that the non-profit doesn't get left behind with that as well. And this was really just, honestly, my for-profit was mainly just a lifestyle business for me to grow the nonprofit. But now I'm just like, okay, what else can I do? So how have, how have the kids fared during this? Are you still able to connect with them? Uh, you know, I'm sure they don't all have iPads and, and iMacs at home. And Man, they're winning. Uh, I have volunteer coaches and he started organizing workouts at the park. <laughs> and so we've kept the team together. I mean, we got we have full workouts going. They're winning. We got a grant from Dick Sporting Goods for 15K, right? And I gave them all brand new boxing gloves. You know, they were calling me last night thanking me and everything. We gave them boxing gloves, shoes. We're traveling up to upstate New York tomorrow. So they're fine. I mean, they're good. Like, in terms of boxing, yeah. like, our kids are probably the best taking care of amateur boxers in this country outside of Team USA. So they have no no problems, you know? Now, they obviously they're struggling with certain things, but in terms of boxing, it's like, no, man, we take care of them. Yeah, cool. But I can't, I, just the image of that where you've been talking earlier about, like, the intimacy of going toe-to-toe against another human being in the ring to now being in an empty, silent apartment over Zoom. Yes. Like, and, that's got to be tough to, like, get yourself up in the morning to uh, to do that. Do you start to lose a sense of, of like, is does the drive, what do you do to keep your drive when the experience terrible. is so it different? Was, it was really hard because, I mean, at one point I was doing, like, nine class because I had to stop the free classes because we had the free classes going on Zoom and Facebook, whatever. We didn't have any clients. I mean, it was only for, like, three days when I started that going. I started doing that. But then I started getting these clients online and – you know, we're doing like upwards of like 18 classes a week at one point between the paid clients and the free classes. And so we had to cut those off. But no, nah, man, it was. um, Yeah, sometimes it's very hard, you know, just staying motivated because you get on camera. You just go, hey, everybody, what's going on? But behind the scenes, you're just like, oh, my God, just let it be off. And the other thing, too, is some clients, they don't cut the camera on, too. No. So you're literally like just, you know, but I'm a I'm a personal guy. And the way I teach boxing I think people actually do appreciate it because like I get on the Zoom session, I tell them, I'm like, look, I'm not Billy Blanks and this ain't Tybo. I'm like, this is a sweet science. This is a Jack Dempsey, the Muhammad Ali, the Mike Tyson. And I'm a coach and I teach and they appreciate that. Do you ever encourage your corporate clients to go get punched in the face, but take it more than just a cardio workout? Um, not really. I mean, nah. Sometimes, I mean, when I was in person, right, like I still train clients in person. Mm. I just got back from one of my, one of my clients today. He dropped me off. Um, so I'm just working with him, but not all of them. You kind of know, you know, when somebody's kind of got it and somebody can't. 
everyone, here's a quick interruption to just thank you for listening and also tell you how you can support the show. If you're a new listener, please subscribe so you can get our latest episodes every two weeks. We're on Apple, Google, Spotify, and Stitcher. We also know that word of mouth is the best advertisement, so go ahead and share us with someone if you think they'll enjoy our show. If you want to engage with us, you can find everything about the podcast on thankyounowwhat.com. You can also follow us on Instagram and Twitter at thankyounowwhat. And you can always get in touch directly by emailing thankyounowwhat at gmail.com. If you really like what we're doing here and you'd like to share the cost of doing business with us, there are a couple options. You can give a one-time donation via the PayPal link on our website. You can also use our Patreon link on our website or go to patreon.com slash thankyounowwhat. There you can subscribe to give a fixed amount per episode, even if it's just a dollar. Please know that Ben and I are volunteering our time and effort and that all net proceeds from this podcast will be redirected to nonprofits that support veterans as soon as we pay for things like hosting, software, and equipment. You can also choose to give directly to the nonprofits that we feature, which we greatly appreciate as well. Thanks, and let's get back to the episode. There's a picture on your website I love. It's like this little kid, and he's got these gloves on. Beagle the gloves Weagle. are half. What's that? His name, we call him Beagle Weagle. <laughs> Why is that? Just He's just small, man. He's just Beagle Weagle, man. That's just what we call him. You know? His his gloves are like half the size of his body, but he looks like a little badass. Like he's eyeing down the camera. He is. He's badass. His name is Sebastian. He's badass. And it's even those little shots, right? I took that photo myself. And even just how you angle it, man, you can make people just look so much stronger, you know, just having him yeah. look down at the camera. But that's like one of my favorite photos. Yeah, it's it's great. I mean, I, I don't even feel like I have to ask this question, but is that the most rewarding part of what you do? Working with the kids? Yeah. It sounds like everything, like if, if you had to get rid of everything else, you would just maintain being a positive influence in these kids lives so the thing with ironbound right i was actually thinking about this is like everyone thinks of like superheroes and all that kind of stuff right which is nice for like the comics and everything mm-hmm. but nobody is really self-made you know let's be honest you need like a team you know you need a group right and i just have been fortunate enough to like as i kind of look at what ironbound is and how we position ourselves you know ironbound is like my way of fighting against the inner city you know what i mean it's a way of fighting against like economic hardships and poverty and everything like that and instead of a character i just use the organization mm-hmm. like if there's a hard problem that needs to get solved i just got to think creatively and say hey how can ironbound handle this or what can we do to address this issue and you know what can we offer so like that's why we launched our incubator we were already planning on doing stuff around entrepreneurial education once COVID hit, we were like, we're going to do this pitch competition. Yeah. Right. But then once post George Floyd and all that kind of stuff, I realized my pitch competition got a lot of traction very quickly. And so I was like, let's bring this thing. Let's just round it out. <laughs> you know, you got an urban community full of black and brown people. Unemployment rate is at an all time high. People waiting on stimulus checks. Small businesses are closed down. I'm like, this is the perfect time to introduce something like what we're offering. And Ironbound is just a vehicle to do it. Yeah. So you have a local incubator. What types of people are coming to you with ideas? Is it like kids, high school kids, so young adults, it. or yeah. anyone from the community? No. So we're very focused, right? So we focus on, at Ironbound, we focus on youth and young adults. Okay. All right. So ages anywhere between 10 to like 22, 25 upwards. Because one thing you got to understand in this environment, 
social maturity. So a 21-year-old can still be living at home, working minimum wage job. Maybe he doesn't even have a job, which a lot of them don't. And it's like, can they afford to pay $200 a month CrossFit? Can they pay $100 a month boxing gym membership? No. So why do they do? They go to the streets. They do all these other things. And so for me, it was always important to serve that demographic. And so we've been focusing on youth and young adults. So for this incubator, you know, we're focusing on ages 14 to 22. And we're teaching them entrepreneurship. We started with a pitch competition, small business competition, but they actually come with ideas. You know, we're honestly incubation, but we focus more on business coaching, to be honest, because a lot of them like entrepreneurship, it's simple. It's just not easy. Okay. Right. Like you take out like the venture capital and all that kind of stuff. Like what is entrepreneurship at its core coming up with a product or service to solve someone's problem. And a lot of these kids have great ideas. Now, what they lack was the human capital, right? The social capital and the network, right? To actually bring it to life. And so what we're doing through our program is we're connecting those dots and helping them. Yeah. So you're creating this new ecosystem that allows us to create a more inclusive economy focused on small business. And we're able to actually test and validate the way we teach business on this young demographic. And then you can use this knowledge to help uplift other communities. That's great. And I don't really think there are a ton of small business coaching apparatuses targeted at, at young people. It's kind of, it's assumed that you'll go to college, get a standard education, probably get a job. And then at some point, if you want to build something on your own, you'll maybe just figure it out or go to business school, you know, if you can afford it. But I don't think that we're teaching this kind of at the lower levels. We had uh, one of my best friends on, Nate. He runs a construction company in North Carolina. He's got five kids. He has his kids on the job site with him, and he homeschools his kids. And one of the most more important things to him was teaching his kids how to create value and not just get some skills and go out and get a job and expect someone else to employ you. I think it's I think it's great. It's something that I never was exposed to as a kid. So I think what you're doing is great. It seems like your first step, right? This is like a second iteration of something that your first time doing it was when you moved to Newark. You're like, hey, I'm going to walk the streets. I'm going to show that there's opportunity through me and my gym and coaching, that there's another way, there's another activity that you can do. And now you formalize that with the incubator. You know, so I see that as just, it, to me, the real issue is these kids don't know about the opportunities. Everybody has an idea. I think that's a given, but to know that you can actually follow through on it and that there's a network out there, I see that as like just a continuation of a mission that you've had. And uh, what's your next step with that? As the incubator goes, do you see a next step for growing it? Yeah, our focus, so we want to do is we want to train 10,000 young entrepreneurs of color here in Newark. That client, I told you, man, um, he's got a space here, topology, right? We got an on-site incubation, right? So- I have a vision for basically the new classroom, a classroom with a podcast studio and laptops and computers with all kind of media equipment loaded up on it. And you go in there and you just play around. You got an idea for something, you can figure it out. Hey, I use my network because we got tons of people. They want to be business coaches. Have they ever coached anybody? No. <laughs> hey, I got the perfect one for you. You get some stripes in, you get your reps in too. You know, so you create this kind of ecosystem where kids can grow. I want us to be the like go to because the boxing 
we're at our core boxing is like our bread and butter right i'm not even lying that's our thing right but if we don't give our kids an opportunity outside of the ring we are failing them and to be honest a lot of sometimes some of the kids we work with are unemployable who's going to give them a chance you know so you got to create you got to help them create them chances for themselves and I think entrepreneurship is one of the ways to do that. Because at this very core, all it is is generating income for yourself. You know, you can do a product-based business, service-based business, simple. Hey, you guys need your car clean? Cool, $50, boom. You go to a car lot, hey, I'll clean all these cars for $500 a week. You know, now you get two of those on your belt. That's $1,500 a week, you know? So you just, you help them understand all the kind of stuff that they teach in business school just at their level. You know, customer lifetime value, retaining clients, like all that kind of stuff. The difference between sales and marketing, like all just the basic business stuff. I remember one of my friends said when he was a kid that, you know, it's typical mowing lawns business where he'd go around and get a few lawns to mow and then he would mow them for a few weeks and he'd say, well, I could get more lawns if I have other kids mow them for me. And so then he had a little staff of kids who were like one or two years younger than him. And then he had a hundred lawns under his belt and he wasn't even touching a mower. Yeah. And he, but he, he grew it from, and I, and we were both in the military at the time and I'm sitting, we we're training. I was like, man, what the hell are you talking about? Going back to my never thinking about this before. Yeah. And it's a smart way to build a business up because again, like I get, we, people don't really know business because right? we don't teach it in school. And another thing we're focused on too is we're strategies that are not just going to make, you know, one Mike Stedman. It's like I go to the mountaintop. I'm not the only one up there. There's like 40 of us up there Mm -hmm. because the strategies that are not like one out of every 10. Like, no, these are like tested, proven ways to bootstrap your business from the ground up and de-risk it. 10,000 kids, huh? That's quite a goal. Yeah, it's a goal. It's going to take like five years. But then again, you start thinking about it. It said train 10,000 young entrepreneurs of color. Now we'll say we start getting pulled in and I don't know, a local high school. And another thing, too, with COVID going on right now education is all over the place. So there's a lot of opportunity there. Hey, can you, can Ironbound do a entrepreneurial session with us or something, mm-hmm. you know? And now how you, here you are streaming a class over media and you're good. Yeah. Uh, we're past the hour, but do we have time to talk about your own podcast? We do. Cool. So you launched uh, this February? I did February 1st. It's called Confessions of a Native Son. We touched on it a little bit before. Why confessions? So I'll tell you, there's a, my background is African-American history, African-American studies. Like that's my wheelhouse. Okay. Mm-hmm. Um, when I moved, and you got your master's too. In, in I got history, my master's right? in American studies. I wanted to do, I got my undergrad in history okay. and my master's in American studies from Rutgers Newark. And American studies is very interdisciplinary, mm-hmm. you know, so it's a cross between like all the different departments. But at our core, we look at culture, you know, films, media, books, all that kind of stuff. And I actually wanted to do African-American studies, but Rutgers Newark didn't have an African-American studies program. They offered American studies. And I didn't know the difference, to be honest. And I found out it was all interdisciplinary. It's just what you study, you know. Mm-hmm. So I'm a common sense guy. I was like, look, I'm not from Newark. But I want to immerse myself in the community. I live here. I work here. I go to school here. Right. I gave myself the best chance I got, you know, to be part of this community. And I got exposed to American literature. Right. And I really enjoy American lit through American studies. And I'm thankful for that because I never understood really, you know, when you're in school and you read like all these books like To Kill a Mockingbird 
and Tom Sawyer and all that kind of stuff. You don't realize that when these books were written, they weren't written for kids. Yeah. These books were like ways of authors criticizing and critiquing American society. They just did it through fiction. Mm -hmm. So once you start to understand that, it's very powerful for me. And there's an author by the name of Richard Wright who wrote a book called Native Son. And it's like one of the most famous books in African-American and African-American literary canon. And uh, it's about a, uh, a protagonist named Bigger Thomas who plays basically white America's fears of the black man. Right. He's angry. He doesn't know why he's angry. He gets in crime. He gets all these things, but he just can't get ahead, you know, and he just checks like every box. He ends up murdering somebody, ends up raping someone and gets executed for it. But you're following this journey of this character. Right. Mm -hmm. And so it's like life inside the ghetto through the character. Well, James Baldwin, who is a very famous social critic, right, wrote another book and wrote an essay off of that called Notes of a Native Son. And in Notes of a Native Son, he addresses Bigger Thomas and how limiting that character was because it didn't show the true scope of basically African-American experience. You know, it was just like this very narrow view of the African-American experience. Same thing like Uncle Tom's Cabin, right? Mm -hmm. Okay. I did my podcast, Confessions of a Native Son, because I want to write a book called Confessions of a Native Son, which represents the evolution of Native Son, Notes of a Native Sons, and the Confession, and basically insert myself in that social critic space as an African-American veteran addressing certain issues and topics. Because that's one of the things we haven't heard from, right? We've got the social critics out there, but it's like, what does an African-American Naval Academy grad think about Colin Kaepernick? Or what does he think about all these different things, right? We hear other people tell us what we're supposed to think, but do people really hear us? Do they know us? Do, have they heard us speak? And so I say that to say the podcast is a homage to Richard Wright, James Baldwin, and even Ralph Ellison, who wrote Invisible Man. And it's just this idea of going deeper and showing black people as like a little bit more complex than people realize and having a platform where I can come on. And it just kind of happened. I just started giving confessions and it was a thing that stuck and really engaged with the audience. And then a guest would come on. And one time I was like, all right, you got to give a confession. And I found out it was a way to create empathy with the audience. So it's one of the things I started doing, you know? Mm. So people kind of reach out to you and they write an email. And one of the first things they do is they give a confession themselves. Really? So like what type, what types of things do people say to you? I mean, all kind of stuff like confession of like, I'm one of those people you mentioned my podcast. I never saw race, but now I see race all the time and it bothers me. And now they're kind of looking back at themselves and saying, Hey, what could that, what, what was I doing to contribute to the situation we have now? You know, I've had people confess of like, look, I'm commenting on your stuff and this is why I think about it. But full confession, I don't really have a lot of black people in my life, <laughs> you know, like all this kind of stuff. And so, you know, just being honest, you know, people appreciate the honesty. That's the thing. And more so, I'll tell you, from the black officers, it's been really impactful for them mm. because they have never heard. So I've been told someone speak to their existence the way I do. Because it's just not a voice you've never heard. People just don't hear it. You know? Yeah. I launched my podcast well before George Floyd. Yeah. So we were already rocking and rolling. All right. All of a sudden George Floyd happens and now all of a sudden people are starting to speak up. And so it drove a lot of traffic in my circles to my podcast because, you know, you got classmates that like I took one class with at the Naval Cabin. They're like, hey, 
They call me up. Hey, uh, Mike, what's going on, man? Uh, just want to know what you think about this George Floyd stuff. And I was just like, just overwhelming. And I'm just like, just listen to the podcast. Just listen to the podcast. And uh, it just became my, my safe space, a real safe space to talk about race, culture, race and culture and business. Yeah, it's hard to find a safe space and people may contest that like a safe space doesn't exist, right? It's more like a, a minefield for a lot of people. But I'd- they exist. You can't force a, the safe space is not something you can artificially create. Yeah, it either is or it isn't. Yeah, it's why before George, even still today, there's a lot of power dynamics at play. So I didn't know that. I couldn't articulate that at the time. And so I created the, the platform as a way for me to share my truth. And it's a, a it's a real safe space. What you're having, though, is people put the term safe space out, but it's still not safe yeah. because the power dynamics at play prevent it from being safe. And so you kind of owning your own business and, and owning your own direction, I mean, that must free you up to share your real unfiltered opinions. Right. Is that empowering to be in charge of your own livelihood so you can do something like that? Yeah, absolutely. Because I'll tell you, I work with people and it's like, yo, you invite me to a public speaking event or something. You know what you're getting. (laughs) There's listen, people spend 60 percent of their time at work lying, hiding and faking. You know, it's exhausting. It takes away from performance because you're you're thinking about all this. You're thinking about everything except the work in front of you, you know, Hmm. and it's exhausting. And so for me. I don't really want to do that, you know? Um, And so you're right. The podcast frees me up from those power dynamics because again, it's like, it's like, yo, if I, if somebody doesn't like my podcast, they probably weren't going to support me anyway. I've had somebody, I had somebody write to me and he was like, I feel like your podcast is very troublesome and you're probably alienating white people who otherwise would support you. I was like, well, they ain't supporting me now, (laughs) you know? And I got white people that listen to my podcast and love it, yeah. you know? So it's like this idea of like, who are you to tell me about, you know, the show? It's like, you weren't supporting it before. I'm going to change it up and support it now. And there's an interesting thing I've noticed with the show too, is I get on and I start talking about this stuff. And my, the majority of the responses I get from the white audiences are, we want solutions. Mm-hmm. Right? All right, cool, boom, you said your piece, let's give us solutions. Black people are like, no, me next, <laughs> me next. I want to be heard. Like black people in this country want to be heard because they haven't been heard for so long. And so I just think it's interesting how one group is saying, okay, let's move on past this. And another group is like, we're just scratching the surface. Y'all ain't had to hear us enough. And I'm kind of thinking on the show, I'm like, damn, you know, cause I've gone down this rabbit hole with always faithful where I talk about my Marine Corps experience. And it's like, look, you can hear from me, but if I got 300, 400, 500 black officers on here, from the Naval Academy to talk about their existence. It will make you sick to your stomach. But it's like, that's not the sole focus of the show. So I probably won't go down that rabbit hole. But this sense of like, you think you know because you hear one hour episode of something. Now you're SME on it. No, you need to sit here. You need to let this stuff marinate. And you need to understand that these people that you've had in your home and you worked with and went to school with and whatever for 20 years, you still don't know them. I, uh, I've been through a couple episodes so far i'm gonna download more and uh, i've enjoyed it so far what i really liked about your episode with ian was that you had this common background and that you both served and that sort of like either cut through the tension or eliminated the tension so that you could have a real honest conversation And, and i've seen that among people who have that shared military background that they're able to 
get over something and, and start discussing real stuff. I wish we could do it as uh, sharing common background as citizens, but I think there are just more roadblocks in place there. I think America is very tribal. Mm. That's the thing that I realized. Outside of the military, people don't really come together. Even in college, right? By the way the military design, it forces us to come together. So that's how you can have a Confederate, you know, and somebody else, you know, serving in the same unit side by side. But at the end of the day, we do have that connection, right? Which is astronomical compared to everyone else. Mm -hmm. So we can have a conversation, you know? And on that episode, he tells you his family, Confederate memorabilia, his Confederate, you know, he told us that's what they do for years. I'm like, I hate Confederacy. Like I don't, I, I it, it's always bothered me, mm -hmm. but we can still come together and have this conversation. And America ain't even trained to hear that, you know, because I have people reaching out to me. They're like, he triggered me. I felt triggered just listening to him talking about, I'm like, did you even listen? I understand, but that's the problem. You can't get triggered. I would like to think I'm a pretty, like I give my platform, I share my space, right? The man is just speaking his truth. Just listen to the conversation, right? This sense of like, I'm right, you're right. It's not like that. You know, we all bring unique perspectives and understandings. All I'm trying to do is have the conversation to be heard and allow him to have the conversation to be heard. It's not about necessarily proving one or the other wrong. It's the idea that there is growth happening in this conversation. And so people don't, they're not programmed for that. America, civilian, American citizens aren't programmed for that. We're so isolated, right, left, you know, you know, they can't even sit in the same room with someone that think like, if someone thinks different than me, Let's just talk about it. I'll tell you where I'm coming from. Doesn't mean I'm going to agree with you. Doesn't mean you have to agree with me. But this is just how I think. Yeah. you got to push the envelope. And that's why it's a labor of love, man. I'm really excited about it. It was the last thing I needed to do. Right, My business coach was like, do not do a podcast. You know, he's like, I don't think it's your focus right now. <laughs> but it's just like I had stuff I had to say. And I've grown through the podcast in this short amount of time, just even in public speaking. Yeah. I mean, we had a kind of similar. Well, similar feeling uh different goals and 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 methods but you know we knew that there were these stories of people who had served and now getting on with their lives that we just had to tell them right and uh i'm sure you probably went through kind of the same thing like learning as you go building the airplane and flight whatever you want to say you mentioned this earlier about getting your first few clients like for us our first five podcast interviewees were people i knew personally and i knew that they would give us a little leeway you know as we kind of ironed out the kinks a little bit um but yeah it's been great it's a great way to create space for conversation and it's actually really enjoyable right and it actually makes your conversations with people you know more meaningful if they tune in for an episode. Yep. Right? I mean, I'm sure you get that too because I'll have people sending me texts like they just join the conversation. They're like, hey, when Katie said this, I just started thinking about that time. And I'm like, well, what do you mean? Oh, you're talking about one of the episodes. Yeah, no, I got that text today. Yeah. You know, I from a Marine, listen to my episode, podcast, one of my Marines was like, I forgot all about that. But it's right. And when people, they feel like they get to know you. Podcast is very intimate. People feel like you're talking to them. Yeah. Like you are talking directly to them. And so they, they feel like they know you. Yeah. All right. Well, we'll keep listening. Uh, Matt, thanks for going you got, overtime with us. What's up? Yeah, wrap, wrap oh, up yeah. with your We're question. trying this question that we ask everyone as sort of like a thematic thing to the podcast. It wasn't working out with everyone. But I would ask people like... Um, who are you if you never served in the military? 
Ooh, that's a good one. Who am I if I never served? Yeah, who are you today? Man, man. that's a hard question. Honestly, I might just be, I don't know if I'd be a leader, to be honest. Yeah? I don't think I would have the training. I don't think I would have the training. I don't have the confidence. Like, love, hate the Marine Corps, whatever. Marine Corps put you in the hot, it put me in the hot seat over and over and over and over again, you know? And people, most of America does not have that experience. I mean, think about it. If you go to a job and you're working, you know, you work your way up, right? Like, yeah, you may get a little leadership, one, two, three people. But, I mean, you're not 22 years old running around leading platoons, you know? Yeah. Like, it's just different mentality. And so being really responsible and being trained in a framework to do it, I just don't know if I would be as confident, comfortable as confident as I am now. I think the Marine Corps definitely gave me some grit because COVID probably would have broke me without the Marine Corps. I might be just waiting around for my stimulus check like everybody else. Yeah. But this mentality of just like, man, you're a leader, you know, and you're finding out now, especially in America, man, a lot of people are, they're hiding. Leaders hiding under the table. They're like, huh, you know, <laughs> and those of us that are leaders are like rising to the top. And I think the veteran community is going to pull us out of this because this felt like war. When they can't, when when these when these small businesses start closing shop, fighting tooth and nail to keep their employees on, I mean they're pivoting, they're doing everything, and then the government just pulls it out of them. It felt like war. It felt like very sad to me. But I can only imagine what that must feel like as a civilian and not having the experience of training for it. And at the very least, like we've been trained for this uncertain environment. We've, you know, we've gone through that, and they don't not for them not to have that is very. I would be very challenged. Yeah. Well, I'm sure your people feel fortunate to have you bring that to the table during this time. Yeah. Well, that's great, man. We're going to we're going to do a wrap up with everything that we mentioned and make sure that, you know, we do another mention and get all those plugs in. But I just really want to thank you for coming on with us. It's been a great conversation and and I'm definitely coming over to visit once we can. Yeah, man. Absolutely. Welcome anytime. Thanks for tuning in to this episode of Thank You Now What, a podcast about life after service. Be on the lookout for Mike as he's training our next generation of young fighters and entrepreneurs coming out of Newark, New Jersey. Be sure to check him out at Ironbound Boxing at ironboundboxing.org. If you want to find out more about their incubator for young entrepreneurs, go ahead and throw a slash thrive by Ironbound on that URL. And if you're interested in listening to Mike's podcast, go ahead and search for Confessions of a Native Son by Mike Stedman on your podcast player. As always, thanks for listening to us. Please go check out the Coast to Coast Foundation, especially over these next two weeks. For the podcast, please subscribe, rate, review, follow, and join us next time on Thank You Now What.